Just a little introduction about the passage that's on the screen. The great apostle Paul, divinely inspired by the Holy Spirit, wrote the letter to the church at Philippi from a Roman prison. And in this Roman prison and in this letter, at the very beginning of it, he gives them a salutation. And in that, he also gives us a very quick glance at the organization of the church. In fact, these are composed of three kinds of people, saints, bishops, and deacons. Now, saints are those that are baptized believers. Let me just say this too. There's nowhere in the Word of God, as some religious affiliations would believe, that somebody is anointed or crowned into sainthood after they die. That is not found in the Word of God, contrary to what some would believe. In fact, the Bible says that we are all saints. So everyone that is a member of the body of Christ, a member of the church, a Christian, baptized into Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, is a saint. Secondly, though, he says there are bishops, and bishops are leaders of the church. We'll not go into that. We've done that in great detail over six lessons. But there are some synonymous terms that are related to the word bishop, and it's talking about the same person. They are elders, they are pastors, they are overseers, and there are shepherds. But then there's a third person that's described in this passage, and it's the third that is described in the organizational structure of the church. And that is, among certain saints, there are deacons. Now, what is a deacon? The word deacon actually comes from the Greek word diakonos, and it actually means a servant. This word is found 30 times in the New Testament. And you know what's interesting about this word? Diakonos is found 30 times. In 26 of those times, it refers to a servant, and only four times it refers to a deacon, or translated deacon. Have no fear, though, because there's ample evidence in the scriptures that proves that they, these were a special office and they were called a deacon. Now, I want to make this point too. A deacon is not a slave of a congregation. Did you get that? There's a difference between a servant and a slave. A deacon, like one man said one time, a deacon is a servant of his work. A slave is a servant of his master. Now, every saint, every Christian is a slave to Jesus Christ. He has bought us by his inestimable blood that was shed on the cross. We're baptized into Christ. We contact that blood. And guess what? For the rest of our life, the saint, the child of God, becomes a slave for Jesus Christ. That's everybody. But a deacon is a servant, a servant in relationship to his work. Practically speaking, a deacon is someone who promotes the welfare and prosperity of the local church by carrying out tasks that are assigned by the elders. Now, there are some that falsely assume, and I've heard this before, elders oversee the spiritual needs of a congregation. And deacons oversee the physical needs of the congregation. 
That is not true. That is not true. Deacons oversee nothing. And elders oversee everything. An elder in the body of Christ oversees both the spiritual and physical needs of a congregation. They are the overseers of the flock. Deacons, though, deacons serve them as serving them in the tasks that the elders give them in the work. So they are servants of the work directed by the elders. In addition to this, too, deacons were also teachers. You remember Stephen and Philip of Jerusalem in Acts chapter 6? Another man that's found in Philippians chapter 2, Epaphroditus, was a teacher in the body of Christ and also a deacon. Well, I want to notice with you now just a couple things regarding the history of deacons. And if you will, turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 6. In Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7... And the reason that I ask you to do that is the only verse I'm going to put on the screen is the first verse. Let's talk about the history of deacons. We find in Acts chapter 6, beginning there in verse number 1, that there was a problem in the church. In fact, it's the very first one that we can find. And the Bible says there was a murmuring among members of the church. Now, the murmuring or the dispute or the complaining was between two kinds of people, or two peoples, I guess you would say. One were the Grecians, and the other were the Hebrews. So, as I will put now on the screen, verse 1. Now, in those days, when a number of disciples was multiplying, there arose a murmuring against the Hebrews by the Hellenists, because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. First of all, the word murmur means complain. Let me just say as a side note, have you ever known somebody that complained all the time? They were never satisfied. They were never content. They just complained all the time. Nobody likes to be around that person. That's discouraging. Somebody that's always complaining. But in this particular instance, there was a real problem. And the complaining was between the Hellenists and the Hebrews, now who were they? The Hellenists, you remember, they were Grecian Jews that were born and raised in another country besides Palestine. They were the Hellenists. And by the way, we are talking about when we say Hellenists and we say Hebrews, we're talking about converted Christians though. These are members of the body of Christ. So you got two kinds of people. You got those guys that were from a different country, Grecian Jews, other than Palestine. And you have the Hebrews. And the Hebrews were those of Jewish blood, pure Jewish blood running through their veins. They were Hebrews. They were, like Paul said one time, Hebrew of the Hebrews. And they spoke the Hebrew language. Now, here's the problem. In this, there is a conflict. The Grecian Jews or the Hellenists make a charge that their widows were not receiving equal treatment as those that were Hebrew widows. And the, apostle, the apostles came up with a solution. Here it is. And for good reason too. You can't have division. You know what's really sad? Division destroys the church. 
And sometimes when there's a disagreement or there's personality conflicts or there's some kind of a turmoil here and there, and people get into some kind of a complaint back and forth, sometimes they don't rectify whatever it was that was differing between them. And very sad, sometimes division occurs and churches even split. What a terrible thing to have the body of Christ divided. Now, what were the apostles? What did they know? They know if we don't fix this problem, there's going to be division in the church. It's going to tear up the church. That's number one. Number two, what else did the apostles know? They knew, I don't have time to go serve tables. I don't have time to go out and serve the widows. It's very needed that they get served, though. But I don't have time to go out and serve the widows. We need to have somebody else do that so the apostles can continue to preach the word of God. In fact, as the Bible says, to continue in preaching and in prayer. little side note here. I'm an evangelist working among you. And you have no idea how much I appreciate the workers of the congregation that see about the needs of others. I love you for that. That is a good work. The Lord loves that too. But when you, as a, as a body of Christ, as members of the church, you that are saints, go out and help others and see to the needs of others, it frees me up as an evangelist to do my work. And that is to preach evangelistically, to teach uh, in, in an edifying way, and also to set in order the things that are lacking. Now, every Christian needs to go and see the needs of others. But I really appreciate those that go out and do that and take care of those that have needs. So the apostles come up with a solution. They instructed the church to choose seven men from among them that would care for this business. In other words, the business at hand was not to be demeaned. It was very, very important. But the apostles understood they didn't have time for that. So he gave some general qualifications. Now, the general qualifications were these. Number one in the general qualifications, there were those of honest report, as the King James says. In other words, they had to be a man of honest report. He had to be a man that was full of the Holy Spirit. And number three, had to be a man that was full of wisdom. Let's talk about these individually. First of all, the words honest report as found in the King James Version really simply means this. In fact, it is translated in this way in the New King James. And that is, we've got to find seven men of good reputation. That's, that's reasonable. Find seven men of good reputation. In other words, men of good reputation and integrity. What else in a general sense? Full of the Holy Spirit. Full of the Holy Spirit. Now, i got to tell you, for many years I thought because of various commentators that this was talking about miraculous gifts or spiritual gifts. And when he said, find seven men of good reputation that are full of the Holy Ghost, I used to believe that this was talking about those that had the endowment of spiritual gifts given to them and were able to perform miracles. There's a problem with that. There's a problem with that in this qualification. What's it actually talking about? McGarvey says this. 
This means men that are full of the Spirit as respects to the fruits of a holy life. Now, let me just say this. Let me just say this. This, if this is talking about miraculous gifts, full of the Holy Ghost being miraculous gifts, if that's what that means, then this does not apply today because we do not have miracles today. So they had to be men of honest report or good reputation, full of the Holy Ghost. Now, um, remember this too. When spiritual gifts were given, they had to be given by the laying on of the apostles' hands. Now watch this. This verse that we're talking about that says full of the Holy Spirit or full of the Holy Ghost is in verse 3. The laying on of hands did not happen until verse 6. So whatever it was here, it was talking about a requirement or a qualification that they had before the laying on of the apostles' hands. Therefore, I believe it could not have been miraculous. All right, so how do we apply this today? What is a practical way, if we were looking for deacons today, that would fall into the category of being of good reputation and being full of the Holy Spirit, and as those that are described by McGarvey from that passage, who would we be looking at? We would be looking at these fellows right here in the book of Galatians. In the book of Galatians chapter 5. In Galatians chapter 5, Paul gives exactly what we're talking about. We are talking about those individuals that manifest in abundance the fruit of the Spirit. Here it is. So if we're looking for somebody that fits this quality, here it is. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control against such there is no law. In other words, someone that was full of the Holy Spirit from this context of this passage is someone that in abundance manifested the things that I just read to you from Galatians chapter 5. Now, one commentator said, a man can be recognized for what he really is by observing what his life produces. Years ago, you've heard me say this. You've heard me use this quote, and I did, and I did. I made it up. It came to me one day. Years ago, I was coaching a football team that was undefeated, and every week I was trying very hard to keep them focused and not rest on the things that they did, but to continue to work forward. So one day, we were out on the practice field, and I said, listen, we are what we are because we do what we do. And my point was, we have, if we want to continue on the path that we're on, we have to continue doing the things that got us here. But I like what Jesus said, though. I like he said it so much better. In Matthew chapter 7 and verse 20, by your fruits you shall know them. In other words, you can determine a person by the things that they do. It's manifested in their life. Can't you just put your mind back on that day when he says choose men of honest report, seven men that are fit the qualifications that we've just talked about? In other words, their life is manifesting all of these characteristics and qualities in their life. And I'm going to tell you right now, when a person has them, they're obvious. Have you ever heard somebody say that you should never have, have to tell somebody you're a Christian. 
We've said it. I've known a lot of people that wore T-shirts. And on the T-shirt, it was always saying something like, I'm a follower of Christ or I'm a, I'm a Christian. Sometimes bumper stickers are put on cars and they want everybody to know I'm a Christian. I've known a lot of contractors over the, the 24 years that I was a painting contractor. They would have business cards with a fish on them because they want people to, to know that they are religious people. But you know, in your life, you shouldn't have to do any of that. You shouldn't have to wear a t-shirt, a billboard, a bumper sticker, a card, whatever. You shouldn't have to do any of that. People should be able to see the manifestation of what you are by your actions and by the way that you live. The same is true with these deacons. Same is true. Now, what else? There was another quality, another qualification, and that was they had to be full of wisdom. Now, why was that? Those that are full of wisdom are men who are able to make wise and fair decisions. Those are those that are wise. Now, I said stay in the book of Acts, so now look in verse 5. Acts chapter 6 and verse 5. Watch what happened after they said this. And the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, just in the context that we've just said, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. Now, what happened in verse 6? Look at verse 6. So they chose these seven men that fit the bill of these three general qualifications. What happens now in verse 6? They got the seven in front of them. Watch this. The apostles are there, whom they set before the apostles. And when they had prayed, what did the apostles do? They laid their hands on them. Now, folks, the laying on of hands was not merely part of a ceremony of ordination, as some would assume. It was that the apostles endowed the seven with miraculous powers. Do you remember Acts chapter 8? Remember that? Simon the sorcerer. Acts 8 and verse 18. Now Simon saw that through the laying on of the apostles' hands, the Holy Spirit was given. He offered them money. So the giving of the Holy Spirit in miraculous form was always done by the laying on of the apostles' hands. So, miraculous powers came by the laying on of hands. Now look at verse 8. Acts 6 and verse 8. Now, remember this. Before this, they didn't have it. Before this, they didn't have it. They didn't have miraculous powers. In fact, before verse 6, they were full of faith. It talks about Stephen being full of faith. And the Holy Spirit, just like we have on the screen. But after verse 8, things change. Look at uh, Acts 6 and verse 8. And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. Do you see the difference? After the laying on of the apostles' hands, they were able to perform miraculous gifts. So we're talking about this. General sense, got to be a good reputation. You've got to be manifesting the fruit of the Spirit in your life. You've got to be a man that is full of wisdom, making fair decisions. Those are qualifications of being a deacon. Now, let's talk about this. Let's talk about some general duties and responsibilities. I hear this a lot. I hear, well, what in the world does a deacon do then? What is their job description? 
First of all, in a general sense, I would just say that the duties and responsibilities of a deacon are to provide a support structure for elders and preachers so that they can engage in activities that are more centered on teaching God's word. Now, this does not mean that deacons don't share in the responsibility of teaching and preaching God's word. In fact, I know some deacons in the church today of other congregations. They are some of the best congregational teachers that that congregation has. So I'm not saying that deacons don't teach. What I'm saying is the deacons provide a support structure under the, under, the, under the instructions of an elder so that the preachers and the elders can continue with the work of teaching the Word of God. Now, let's talk about some specific qualifications now, though. Specific qualifications. Go to 1 Timothy chapter 3. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, and we're going to notice the things that are found beginning in verse 8. Now, the first thing that he says is reverent. The King James says grave. Now, I don't know what you think about when I think about grave, but I think about something that's pretty negative. Have you ever heard somebody say that something is grave or someone's in grave danger? I think about something that's really uh, negative, and I think about death. But and the King James actually says grave, but it really means reverent. That's what the passage means. That's what the word means, and it means this: serious and somber. Now we have to stop right there. It doesn't mean that deacons have to walk around and be serious from the standpoint of they can't enjoy life, they can't have any fun, they can't laugh, they got to walk around like they're sick all the time religiously. And you know what I think about that. A religion that makes a man sick won't cure the world. It doesn't mean that you have to walk around with a serious, somber look on your face. What it means is this reverent word here means serious and somber about the business that's to be conducted. We're talking about somebody that is serious about the work. And when it comes time to do the work, they are reverent in that they're serious and somber in that, in other words, must not be conducted with a slack hand or a flippant attitude. Here's another one. Not double-tongued. What's that mean? I would venture to say that if you thought about it right now, you could think of somebody that you know that fits, the, fits that very idea of being double-tongued. You know what double-tongued means? Here it is does not say one thing to one person and say another thing to another person. We've known people like that. In other words, who they are is influenced by who they're with. I'm going to tell you, you can't trust that person. You cannot trust a person that will say one thing to one person and another thing to another person. Double-tongued. The psalmist David said this, He that swears to his own hurt and does not change. Somebody that's influenced by those that are around him and doesn't stand for anything is double-tongued. A deacon cannot be that. Here's another one. And by the way, you remember when we preached on the idea of elders and we talked about how the Bible says about an elder he cannot be given to wine. I said... 
Hold that thought because when we get to deacons, I'm going to go into detail about much wine and what that means. So here we go. Another quality is he cannot be a man that is given to much wine. Now, the word much is added to verse 3 concerning an elder. It's added. So you know what people say? They say an elder can't have any. And a deacon, he can have a little. An elder, he can't have any because it says not given to wine. But it looks over there like a deacon, he just can't have much wine. So people have deduced, if a deacon can have a little bit, then that's authorization for social drinking. And a guy can go out and he's not drinking a lot. He can go out and have a couple beers with the boys and everything's fine because after all, even a deacon in the church can have a little bit. He just can't have a lot. The question is, what does it mean when it says much wine? Barnes says this regarding the word much. It is not affirmed that it would be proper for a deacon any more than a bishop to indulge in the use of wine in small quantities. In other words, Barnes is saying, when it says not given to much wine, it is not saying that a deacon is authorized to have a little bit, just not a lot. That's what he's saying there. He further goes on and says this, it is affirmed that a man that is given to much wine ought not on any consideration be a deacon. Now, let's go further. Wycliffe said this. This is Wycliffe on much wine. He said, The Bible testimony is consistently against the use of strong drink. The practical application of the principle in modern society, this is the practical example, is total abstinence. All right. Now, but there's got to be a better explanation. And there is. Here's the better explanation. And believe it or not, E.M. Zur, e. Zur had the best explanation. Here it is. Watch this. The old-time wine was often used as medicine. Don't you remember what Paul said to Timothy? Timothy said, "Don't no longer just drink water, Timothy, but have a little wine for thy stomach's sake and thine oft infirmities. In other words... He told Timothy, because of the infirmities that he had physically, to take a little wine for that purpose. In other words, Zer says, the amount, little wine, was always connected to medicinal purposes. Always. Back up again. The old time wine was often used as a medicine. And that's what Paul meant in 1 Timothy 5.23. But the amount for medical purposes was always considered a little wine. And it would not make a man drunk. Thus, if a person manifested drunkenness, it was evidence that he is using it for the purpose or not using it for the purpose of health. How do I summarize all that? Here it is. If I take some medication with alcohol in it, that is the equivalent today of little wine. Anything in addition to that is considered from a social standpoint or any other way, it is considered much wine. 
So that's all it is. Medicinal purposes given to us by, for medicine and medical purposes. That is little wine. That is not a sin. That's what Paul told Timothy to do. Anything in addition to that, anything is considered much wine, and that is wrong. Now, let's go further, though. Why, why would Paul, in all of this, and given the qualifications of a deacon, why would Paul say it's okay to have a little and just don't get drunk, if that's what he meant. Why would he say that? When the wisest man that ever lived, except for Jesus Christ, said this in Proverbs chapter 20 and verse 1. Watch this. Wine is a mocker. Intoxicating drink arouses brawling, and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. Why did I highlight those words? I did for this reason. Watch this. He doesn't say... Becoming intoxicated leads to brawling. He didn't say that. He didn't say becoming intoxicated is a mocker. He talked about the intoxicant itself. The intoxicant is a mocker. The intoxicant arouses brawling. And whoever is led by it, the intoxicant, is not wise. Christians have no business, no matter who we are, Drinking at all. Here's another one. And some of these we're just going to kind of swing, just kind of breeze by because we went in great detail about an elder. But those that are greedy for money. A deacon cannot be greedy for money. In other words, no lover of money. Money is not their God. It is not what drives them in their life. 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 10. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil... For which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. So, a person that is driven by greed and is driven by money is a person that doesn't qualify to be an elder. And the reason for that is it takes their mind and their motive and their heart away from what is, should be their focus. Here's another one. And I'm just going to call it this. I'm going to call it a holder of the faith. Paul says it's those that hold the mystery of the faith. Deacons, and all Christians for that matter, need to hold the faith. It's a matter of the ability to express clearly and convincingly what they believe. Okay. I'll tell you, I know a lot of Christians that believe what they believe because they know it's right. Because they've always been taught that. Because they've always done it that way. But cannot tell you why. A deacon being a holder of the faith is the ability to express clearly and express convincingly what they believe and why. The deacon also must know what he believes and be firm and secure. Especially in matters of doctrine. This is somebody, not by his own thoughts or by his own standards, but by the standards of the Word of God, is someone that can distinguish between good and bad. He can commend the good while condemning the bad. Another quality. Paul says he must be proved. What does that mean? Well, first of all, the deacon must first be tested, and he must have the qualifications listed. Now, let me say this. Let me say this. When it comes to an elder and a deacon, nowhere does it say 
Let's install them, and they'll grow into the qualifications. I've heard that taught. I've actually heard somebody take the interpretation of the passage when it says the elders that rule well. Now, what do we already know about ruling well elders? We know it's those that are doing so. They don't have a job. Perhaps they're retired. Their entire existence is the church. And they are elders in the church. That is their life. And when they teach the word of God and they labor in word and doctrine, it says, those men are those that rule well and they are those that are worthy of double honor, meaning the honor of being an elder and the second honor, meaning financial support. So if a man is an elder and that's his entire existence and he's teaching and laboring in the word of God, guess what? The elder gets supported financially just like the preacher. But I heard somebody say one time this. You see, if in fact it is true that there are elders that rule well, then there also are elders that, elders that do not rule well. Maybe they're the younger elders. They could just kind of grow into the position. No. Elders and deacons had to be proved. Meaning, they had these qualifications before they were installed. What else? He must be of sufficient age. That would allow time for faithfulness and steadfastness in the work of God. Here's another one. We spent a lot of time on it with elders. Remember this one? Blameless. What's that mean? It doesn't mean he's a perfect man. It doesn't mean that he will not make mistakes because he will. It just means this. There are no sustainable charges against him. He does not have a reputation for evil. That's somebody that is blameless. Here's another one. This is exactly like an elder. He's the husband of one wife. Now, you can read commentators and they'll tell you all manner of things, but really, when it talks about the husband of one wife, we are talking about a one-woman man. That's what that means. Husband of one wife is a one-woman man. This is somebody, this is somebody that is faithful to his bride. In the same form and fashion that Jesus Christ is to his bride, and that's the church. He's faithful and true to his bride, just like Jesus Christ is faithful and true to his bride. There are no other women in his life. This is a man that is the husband of one wife. He is a one-woman man. What else? He rules their children and their own house well. Their children are not out of control. Yeah, they're not out of control. Now watch this. Remember when we talked about with elders, we talked about ruling? Ruling doesn't mean with an iron fist, doesn't mean boss, doesn't mean screaming at kids, doesn't mean that at all. It means to lead. In other words, I lead my family. For example, if I was to fit that quality, I would be somebody that was a one-woman man, faithful to my wife as Jesus Christ is to the church. Furthermore, I would lead my children and I would lead my entire household in the way that they should go. And my kids would demonstrate that and they would not be out of control. Wild and out of control. Incidentally, incidentally, you can tell how kids are brought up. You really can. If you ever coach or you're involved in anything at all with kids at all, you can tell who was raised right and who was not. You can tell who has respect for authority and who does not. You can tell who's in control and respectful and who is out of control and disrespectful. 
Don't you see? It's the manifestation of what they got at home. And a deacon is supposed to be such that he leads in such a way that his children are examples of how he led his family. Furthermore, furthermore, he's a man that loves his wife as Christ loved the church. He cares for his family. He follows the example of Abraham. Listen to this passage in Genesis 18 and 19. For I have known him in order that he may command his children and his household after him that they keep the ways of the Lord to do righteousness and justice that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has spoken to him. All right. Summing up so far. And we are almost finished. I realized that when we gave in six lessons, we went down all the requirements of being an elder. And now we've talked about more requirements and qualifications of being a deacon. And sometimes what people do is, what people do is they think it's so difficult, why bother? It's so difficult, why try? So the mindset really well, we're just not going to have elders today. That's just kind of something that fit them back then. But we're not going to have qualified men, so let's not even worry about it. And we'll just exist in the absence of elders and deacons forever. But folks, two things about that. Name one thing that's found in the qualifications of an elder or one thing that's found under the qualifications of a deacon. Name one thing in your mind that is unreasonable or hard to do. Secondly, except for the familial requirements of a deacon, everything I said today, except for the family requirements of being the husband of one wife and ruling well his own children and his own house, do you know, every one of those other qualities fits every single Christian. Every one. So in other words, the idea wasn't to try to find men that were supernaturally superior in a spiritual sense than everybody else. They were spiritually minded men. And that's why on Crete they were able to ordain elders in every church in every city. They were spiritually minded men and they did fit the qualities. They did fit the qualifications. Just talking about Christians, folks. But there's some great rewards too. Great rewards. Listen to this. Listen to the rewards of being a deacon. In 1 Timothy 3.13, for those who have served well as deacons, obtain for themselves a good standing and great boldness in the faith, which is in Christ Jesus. It is a fantastic benefit. It is a, tra- it is a wonderful thing for being a deacon or an elder in the Lord's church. In conclusion then, this morning, we've talked about Three things. The history of the office of a deacon from Acts chapter 6. We talked about the responsibilities of that office as they serve under the direction of the eldership. And we talked about the qualifications of a deacon. Now, I found this quote and I want to share it with you. I stole it. Watch this. Final point. I love this. One is not a Christian because he is a deacon. But he is a deacon because he is a Christian. Doesn't that kind of fit what I just said about all the things that are related to a deacon also relate to a Christian? 
Just a Christian. That's a Christian. All the qualifications fit except the familiar ones to every child of God. Now, we've now covered the office of an elder and we've covered the office of a deacon and there are only two things left. Here they are. This is all that's left. Number one, it's the qualification of an elder and a deacon's wife. Yeah. Does that mean if a man is fit and qualified in every single one of those qualities and characteristics and qualifications and requirements, is it saying that a wife, if she doesn't fit her role, can disqualify the man? Yes. There's qualifications for the wife too. And secondly, we have to discuss the duties that the church has toward the eldership. Not only the eldership to the congregation, but the congregation to the eldership. I'm through this morning. I hope something was said that was edifying to you, um, encouraging to you in some way on the subject of elders and deacons. I realize that these are things that we, we want to strive for in the future. At some point in time, I would love it for the congregation here to be able to have a plurality of scriptural elders and deacons in this congregation. Now, I don't know when and if we will ever achieve that, but I do know this. If we don't aspire to meet the qualifications and we don't aspire to do that as a goal, we'll never get there. And what will happen is 10 years will go by and we didn't move at all. Another 10 years will go by and we haven't grown at all from that standpoint. So these are things to work toward and work on uh, as we strive for the scriptural government and organization of the church given in the New Testament. We thank you for listening to our podcast put on by the Church of Christ at 2215 Plans Road in Bakersfield. If you would like any additional information or you would like to receive a free Bible correspondence course by mail, please email us at info at churchofchristbakersfield.com. Our service times are Sundays at 1030 a.m. and 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 730 p.m. Please make plans to join us. We would love for you to be our honored guest.